Welcome everyone to the Greenhouse Environmental Humanities Book Talks. I'm Finnar Jørgensen. I'm Dolly Jørgensen. And today we have with us uh, Liam Lewis, who's a lecturer in French at the University of Liverpool in the UK. Um, and he's here to present his book, Animal Soundscapes in Anglo-Norman Texts, uh, that came out with D.S. Brewer now in 2022. So we'll just give it over to you. Well, uh, thank you everyone for coming and thank you so much for the invitation um, to the to the organisers. Um, it's such a, a really good um, collection of, of book talks about the environmental humanities that is being created here. Um, it's also great for me uh, to take stock of, of a kind of longer term project. Um, and to think through perhaps some of the ways that it speaks to broader ideas in the environmental humanities as well. So uh, I'm looking forward to it. Um, so my book is called Animal Soundscapes in Anglo-Norman Texts. But really, um, I want to start by thinking very broadly um, about how I mean, what's the point? What's the point of thinking about animal sounds? And um, I suppose at the beginning of my thinking for this project, I was thinking through kind of common trends in, in animal studies um, at the time, perhaps five years ago now. And I noticed that um, there was a lot of conversation about animals' relationship to human language. And I I'm a medievalist and that's my, my training. And so I was wondering about how that relationship plays out um, in my own archive. So texts from the Middle Ages about, about 800 years ago um, and mainly in French texts. So I started thinking around the subject a little bit. And, you know, um, it's really, Animal sounds are really kind of everywhere, but especially at the beginnings of human expression. There are quite a number of studies now that have looked at how humans teach children language. And certainly in the modern world, many cultures across the globe teach human language through kind of setting up a relation between human language and animal sounds. Um, so I was interested in that, and I was interested in finding out whether that was the same, perhaps, you know, 800 years ago, for example. Um, I found out that it, it kind of is the same, and I'll talk about that in, in, in a little bit. Um, obviously, animals are also really important to us um, today as companions, um, you know, in domestication practices or as part of supplies for food, medicine and clothing. Animals are also really important as symbols, as part of culture and um, enjoyment, and that, that, you know, that has changed a lot over time. And I was also fascinated by um, the way that in the 1970s, the Save the Whales campaign used whale song recorded on the hydrophone to kind of um, really get people to understand what they were, what the whole Save the Whales movement was about. So uh, all of these streams fed into the beginning of my research for this book. 
but obviously I'm a medievalist and um, the ways that animal sounds are recorded in my archive are fundamentally different to the ways that we re-experience animal sounds today, which is usually, you know, if they're not on our desks or lying on our laptops, um, animal sounds are usually come to us through electronic means, um, recordings of, of animals on the internet or, you know, recordings using hydrophones and things and underwater recording. But, but what was before that? So in my research, I found that surprisingly, medieval texts do invite us to think about animal sounds in similar ways to, to our own um, period. Um, and they invite us to, the ways that animal sounds are, re are represented invite us to think about uh, questions of nature, uh, to put the ways that we read and write into perspective and to think about these big themes in animal trends like animal contact and uh, community. So um, I'll get to the I'll get to the to the book now. So animal soundscapes for me are a starting point for understanding how medieval people thought about sound and the natural world. And the term soundscape itself is often identified with Canadian musicologist Armelay Schaefer's work on the tuning of the world and recording sounds of the natural world in the Anthropocene. Um, so this gave me a way in to thinking about how soundscapes might work before modern methods of recording. So in this book, I kind of chart some of the methods for sound representation in um, medieval texts uh, from a literary perspective, but also using uh, critical theory and philosophy to think through the animal. So let me take an example before I, uh, before I go on. So one of the key texts that I look at in this book is a medieval version of the life of St. Francis of Assisi. So I imagine most people here are aware that St. Francis of Assisi is the saint, is the namesake of the current Pope um, of the Catholic Church. And St. Francis is a saint who is typically understood as expressing a love for all of creation. So for example, in an early scene in his saint's life, he invites a cricket to come and, and sit on his arm. And for seven days, he asks the cricket to sing every day. And on the eighth day, he, he kind of releases the, the cricket from this, um, this relationship that he set up and lets it go. But at other points in the life of St. Francis, he also manip manipulates or controls this kind of soundscape that he creates. So um, he teaches lambs to bleat at the altar when the um, when his brothers are singing their praises. He teaches another lamb to bleat as a kind of liturgical alarm clock to wake up a lady in Rome so that she gets up in time for church. And he also silences the birds to preach at different points. So he kind of creates this soundscape in which he moves around um, and interacts with the natural world. But a key part of that soundscape is making sure that he can quieten the birds down so that he himself can praise God. And I found that is quite an interesting 
way of thinking about how how that text works right because a saint's life is supposed to be you're supposed to read a saint's life and it's supposed to be inspiring you to a certain type of religious devotion and sound is really important there because Francis goes around and is always singing God's praises but there's a certain level of human exceptionalism in that scene which shows that even though this saint loves all of creation it's the human praise which is the most important and so I thought you know what does that say about us and about the ways that medieval people thought about animal sounds. I also think about the broader implications of sound in this book um, and the ways that sounds disrupt fixed conceptions of, of sensory perception or human and non-human relations or ideas of language as rational compared to sound as irrational. And my focus on sound is a way of, as I've already said, trying to step out of the tautological loop that's created by scholars in the humanities where we can only ever talk about animals by talking by talking about language. And I thought, well, animals, you know, animals don't really actually speak through language, certainly not from the medieval perspective. So um, sound again is a way in to for us to think about that. Um, in another one of my texts, I think about that key question of, of animal sounds in language learning. And like I said earlier, we tend to teach children language through animal sounds. So the dog barks, the horse whinnies, you know, we might imitate those sounds. Um, and although, although, although in, a, in a medieval text you can't necessarily, we don't really have evidence of kind of pure onomatopoeic imitation, like woof, woof, we do have evidence of uh, these kind of words, word lists that teach you the noises that each animal makes. Um, so this is typically through verbs and, and nouns. So the dog barks, that's a verb, but we also have the bark of the dog as, as a noun. So we have these different ways, these different types of linguistic expression to, to express animal sounds. Um, and these language treatises that I, I looked at, I look at in the book, you know, they show us these familiar patterns of language learning through sound that we find in, in children's books today or in, in the ways that we teach language. And I suppose this is why my archive here is quite important because I'm looking at texts from medieval Britain in this book. And um, medieval Britain at the time after the Norman conquest had at least three uh, really important languages, Latin for uh, the church and lots of legal documents, French as a kind of cultural elite language and English as a language that the majority of the population spoke in different dialects, but um, you know, English is also an emergent language. And I actually found a language treatise that is written in French or Anglo-Norman, and it has English glosses above lots of the French words. And I thought, well, that was a really interesting way when we have these lists of animal noises, it's, 
it's so useful to be able to see, well, this is what they, this is what the word is in French, and this is how it's translated into English. So if you're using it to teach language to children, already they're learning two languages at the same time, French and English. And so that's a you kind of that's kind of an ar archival question about why I chose to study animal sounds in Anglo-Norman texts is that this, this multilingual environment allows us to think in these interesting ways about the sounds of languages themselves, um, as well as in literary texts. Another uh, key doc set of documents that I look at is obviously medieval bestiaries. So these are um, texts that narrate animal behaviours in a kind of naturalistic, kind of pseudo-encyclopedic way. And they uh, present allegories for those animal natures. Um, so for example, the lion is supposed to give birth to dead cubs. And on the third day, the lion walks three times around the dead cubs, breathes or roars into the dead cubs' faces, supposedly bringing them back to life. And this represents, the bestiary tells us that explicitly that this represents Christ's resurrection on the third day. So these are quite conservative documents um, in the way that they present how we're supposed to read the text. But there are some interesting creatures like sirens and mandrakes, which kind of defy the kind of strategy that the text create for us to interpret. And this defiance happens through sound. So the siren is supposed to lure sailors into this kind of sleep through her song. Um, and the mandrake is this root plant that you pull out of the ground and it shrieks. And if you hear it, then you, you're in trouble. So you're probably going to die. And the best year as a text doesn't know how to allegorize those sounds. So it kind of just leaves them there floating and suggesting perhaps that maybe we should, as well as those texts where we're invited to learn language through sound, there are also examples of sounds that we should really try to avoid. They might lure us into temptation or it's kind of a noxious form of sound, um, a noxious form of sound that we need to avoid. And you know, after writing this book, I've written an article about the voyage of St. Brendan, another key uh, text. I thought about noise pollution as, as a way of, of, of thinking about, about that. So, I mean, I can talk about that in more detail if people are interested in that. So one of the key findings of my work in this book is that medieval texts, especially you know, Anglo-Norman texts in particular, always invite us to hear and to understand through sounds. And this happens also through a key French verb, entendre, or entendement. So entendre means to hear, and entendement means hearing or understanding. So these hearing, the idea of hearing something and understanding something are implicitly linked, and texts actually point us to that and say, hear these animal noises and understand through them certain ideas about the natural world or language learning or interpretation. 
So um, although this book has a particular archive of medieval Britain, it's kind of got a foundation in animal studies and in sound studies, which should give readers the opportunity to reflect on their own experiences of reading about animals and about the ways that we memorize animal behaviors or meanings or live with the natural world. Um, and how and sound is kind of the avenue through which I the, the avenue through which I kind of look at medieval texts and the ways they present understanding and response to animals and the natural world. So I think I'll stop there. I mean, I've, I've planned to say more, but I've reached the end of my time, 15 minutes. So I'm really happy to answer any questions about anything that I've just said, or um, yeah, I think I'll hand it over to you. Thanks so much, Liam. Uh, that was great um, to, as an introduction to the book. And so one of the things that um, really interests me is this translation issue. So as you said, you, you, you picked the Anglo-Norman realm because you actually have a very multilingual society um, that's very obvious in the textual sources. And so thinking about the way that animals make different sounds in different languages, um, you know, so in, English in, in the US, at least where I grew up, grew up, um, you know, pigs say oink. That's what a pig does. It says oink. But here in Norway, a pig says nuff. That's what a pig says. Um, and it's like the basic, you know, like as you're saying, when you teach kids and you're right, I, you know, I could go down to the library and pull out the million the kids' books that are all farm animals um, and, you know, and other animals that you learn to say, you know, what does the elephant say? And although some of them you don't, right? Nobody knows what a giraffe says or what the fox says, right? As the song goes. Um, but, but there's this difference then between oink and nef. And I was wondering from a linguistic perspective and thinking about the language, um, you know, do you see a difference between the way your French sources represent then some animals and perhaps some, maybe their Latin or, or the, you know, Anglo-Saxon English um, versions of those animals that tells you something about the way society understands that animal? Because mm -hmm. I, th I think there is something different about oink and nuff um, in that oink is a, is, I don't know, it, it sounds a lot lighter and, and more playful, whereas nuff is very clearly like a, a grunting, you know, digging sound and, and oink is not. So I was wondering about that in your sources. Yeah, so this is, that's a really good question. And it's one that I've been thinking about for, kind of for the duration of the project. And I don't know if I have any really good answer to that question because it's, the ways that different cultures present those animal sounds are are really culturally inflected, like you say. Um, and I think that on a surface level, especially if you're learning language for the first time, you can you can um, you can sometimes think that the language that you're learning is not quite as kind of onomatopoeic as, as your native language. It's not, it, you know, it's kind of not, it doesn't do so well at, at 
translating the real sound. But then I think the more you get to know a language, the more you, you do start to see these patterns, some of which are the same. Um, like in French, the cockerel says cocorico. Um, in, in English, it says cockadoodle-doo. I mean, so there are some similar, you know, there are some patterns there. And that's why I think these word lists are so interesting because we, we can see that over a, a really vast period of time, Western European cultures at least have been writing these lists in Latin, in French, in English. And it's, it's a way that we learn languages through presenting the noun in the kind of third person present participle. Um, and kind of presenting that as a verb, but then that leads to onomatopoeia um, in different in different languages. Um, I suppose the the interesting thing about some of these medieval texts is that they offer their own interpretations as well. So, in in one of the word lists, we have man speaks bear, bre, or bear in, in Middle English, um, which often frightens man and beast. Uh, uh, so we have these uh, animal sounds are linked to specific emotional effects. And I think that that is the same as perhaps when we teach Old MacDonald had a farm or those, those songs. But like, like I said at the beginning, it's a very difficult question to answer because each culture does have its own inflections. Um, I suppose the other thing that I'll say, which I could say more about as well, is medieval texts often in, in French often don't do this. So they don't provide accurate descriptions of kind of onomatopoeia. Instead, like the bestiary will normally just say that an animal cries. So the lion cries instead of roaring, the mandrake also cries it's through this word cri in Old French, which is still used in modern French a lot. And I think in, in French, we often say that an animal cries, whereas in English, perhaps we're more likely to offer precision about different types of sounds. Um, yeah, I, I mean, Feel free to ask a follow-up question if you if you'd like. Yeah, I mean, I was wondering then, are there differences that might be attributable to the environment? So, I mean, the the ecosystems that these animals are found in, or where the writers are, especially because your writers, of course, are actually sitting in England writing then French, um, which has a particular environment. And I'm thinking here of another example where. Uh, animals say different things in the languages that we speak at home. Um, so a frog growing up, to me, ribbit, um, but here it's clock, clock, which is a very different sound, but it's because frogs here, they, they actually say clock. I mean, that, that's like the sound they make, the frog species that are available <laughs> as, as, as interactive, you know, things versus, um, frog species that maybe actually do say like a sound like ribbit. So I was wondering about the environments playing into those uh, roles. Mm. 
Yeah, so the key language treaties that I look at is a treatise by a knight with a quite funny name, Walter of Bisworth. Um, and he is an English knight and he writes this language treatise with these word lists. But he introduces the word list by saying, you know, this is all the type of language that you can hear on a medieval estate. Um, and so I'm teaching these animal noises to, I'm writing them down here so that the lady of the house can teach her children. And so they can run the estate when they're older. And it's quite interesting because there are a lot of jokes in the old French texts, which don't appear in the English glosses. So there are kind of um, jokes, we might, we might not find them quite so funny today, but there are jokes about women or about peasants and um, kind of, so joking about, for example, geese and kind of putting them in relation to, to women or joking about um, peasants and putting them in relation to different kind of animal sounds and things. So um, those appear in the French, but they don't necessarily appear in the English glosses. So it's almost like if you're learning animal noises through these lists, you're learning certain associations as well for a cultural elite, because if you're speaking French, you're, you're a member of the elite. But um, it's almost like it's that language is um, hiding certain things from English speakers as well, which is quite interesting. Whereas medieval bestiaries, they kind of translate. Sorry, I should have said so. I should have said that 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 treatise presents animal sounds. So it says kind of horse whinnies. The lark sings, the dove coos, the cock sings, the cat mews, the snake hisses, the swan re-hisses, the wolf howls, the dog barks, for example. But it also mentions bear. Um, and we know at this time that bears weren't really present in British Isles. So there's also a kind of cultural memory about animal sounds, that even wolves as well, that they weren't really present um, certainly not on estates um, in the British Isles at this time. The medieval bestiary, the other text that I talked about, that was for a different audience. It was for probably for people in monastic orders, although it's dedicated to, um, to a queen of England, um, Adelisa of Louvain. Um, and that's actually translating lots of African flora and fauna for a British audience. Um, and in some of these manuscripts, it's quite interesting because you see pictures of all these different animals, um, lions, hyenas, elephants. And in some of the manuscripts, they just all look like dogs because the person who was illustrating the manuscripts had no idea about how an elephant actually looked. And in, so the interesting thing about that in terms of the sounds as well is that, you know, in those texts, they just say most animals just say cri, they just cry. So it's almost like, again, that precision, that animal sounds not important because it's about how you think about a broad environment, how you think about all the species in that environment and the message that they bring as well. I think I answered your question. But I yeah, that, that was great. Um, Ellen, I don't know if you have another question. She had made a comment in the in the chat saying, oh, Dolly 
quit stealing my questions. So, but I'm sure she has another one. So I'll uh, let her ask that. Hi, first I wanna say, Liam, I'm so excited to read this book. Um, I also am deeply invested in reading um, medieval sources in environmental humanities ways. And um, love that you start, you, you were kind of brave enough to start the conversation with actively talking about modern understandings and modern technologies, because I think we don't often enough bridge that modern pre-modern gap in these conversations. We often start with the medieval. Love that you started with the modern. Um, but my question is actually about a different kind of translation, because I also am a huge advocate of working across source genres in medieval environmental humanities work and curious about how you addressed translating across these different kinds of evidence. You don't have one compact self-contained archive. You have this weird hybrid multivalent archive. Yeah, so um, I think just by, just by the types of texts that I chose, but also the way that medieval archives work and, and texts work, all of my texts have roots in Latin traditions. Um, whether it's word lists about animals, you know, they exist in Latin. Whether it's fables, they exist in Latin. Uh, bestiaries, saints' lives, they, they all exist in Latin. Um, I suppose as a French scholar, I came to this looking for some of these key French texts. Um, and it just, it also happens that some of them are related to English as well. So in the treaties by Walter Gisworth, it's a French text with English glosses. So to, it almost suggests that to understand the natural world, you do have to be fluent in these different languages because they have different words for, for natural things, for example, or, or the natural world, the environment, ecologies. But there's also in at the end of my book, I talk about the quite famous song, English song, Summer is a Coming In. I don't know if everyone's heard it, that it goes, Summer is a Coming In, blue the sing cuckoo, sing cuckoo, sing cuckoo. And it has that refrain um, where, yeah, summer, <laughs> someone in the chat just uh, saying, Summer is a Coming In. Um, so it has this refrain with sing cuckoo. And I kind of end the book by thinking about that Middle English song where if you're singing the song, you're actually invited to imitate the cuckoo noise um, in and round repeatedly. And I was reading that in relation to a medieval fable by Marie de France in which all the birds are in the forest and they hear this noise and they don't know what this noise is. It's actually identified as a cri, again, like I said. And we find out that uh, it, it's actually the cuckoo making some reverberant noise throughout the forest. And yet it causes this kind of upset at the Parliament of Birds because they think that the cuckoo is making such an amazingly loud noise that it should be their king. But the cuckoo, a, a, little, um, a little bird goes just um, above the cuckoo, defecates on the cuckoo's head and the cuckoo, the, cuckoo doesn't say anything, it doesn't respond in any way because it's quite a, a dumb bird, I suppose. 
And the little, that little bird goes back to Parliament and says, we can't have this cuckoo as our king because I've just done this and it didn't respond in any way. Um, and so eventually they, I think they choose the eagle in the end, which is obviously a bad decision because they choose their top predator as their king. But um, in, in one of the same manuscripts, we have the French fable that I've just described. And we also have the Middle English, Summa is a cookie, Summa is a coming in, just kind of after the fables. And under the lyrics of Summa is a coming in, you actually have a Latin text so that you can sing the same song in Latin, but it's got a totally different meaning. It's not about Summa is a coming in at all. Um, so my archive is very mixed between these languages. And I think, as a scholar who's trying to work in the environmental humanities, I think that's perhaps a new perspective that I can bring is these different types of translation um, and, and thinking about how they work as methods for recording sound and setting up interpretations of the natural world in different ways. Um, yeah. Well, I think the allegory of the uh, eagle being made off as the king of the parliaments, um, not actually that far from, unfortunately, what's happened in most of our countries, right? Uh, the people we pick to be in charge. Um, Kate did have a, a question, follow-up question there about that Latin version, right? On the on the manuscripts of the, the Latin of the song where she asks, cuckoo is filio. So um, is it that the... Um, yeah, that you said that it's somewhat unrelated, this Latin kind of version of the song, or is it that somehow it's making a different message? Um, oh. Lost your video there. Oh, there you are. You're back. <laughs> so um, I don't know if you have a, a follow-up there with, to Kate. Yeah, um, well, I can actually, so the... Um... The summer is a coming in song translates, if I just read it a little bit, it's, it's quite crazy. Summer has arrived, sing loudly cuckoo. The seed is growing and the meadow is blooming. The, wind, the wood is springing into leaf. Sing cuckoo. The ewe is bleating after the lamb. The cow is lowing after her calf. Bullock is prancing. The billy goat's farting. Sing merrily cuckoo. So it's quite um, lively, I would say. But the Latin text beneath, translates as something like, look, O lover of Christ, what condescension, the heavenly husbandman, because of a fault in the vine, not sparing his son, exposed him to the ordeal of death. And so it, it almost, again, is almost trying to allegorise uh, and, and maybe gloss over the, the billy goat farting and, and go straight to an allegory of Christ which is, is what Latin is very good at in medieval texts as well. You know, we can use we can use these different languages to express different things. I suppose going back to Dolly's question, um, that's a good example. We have a very kind of allegorical, um, poised Latin translation, a very uh, mirthy, irreverent English. And the fable in French before is, you know, a, a narrative language which, which French was really coming into its own for at that time. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's 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 fascinating. Um seeing those juxtaposed, you know, 
juxtaposed together. Um, yeah, th that you uh, have a very different feel about, you know, spring and life and then, oh, death and, you know, Christ um, on the other yeah. side. Um, Gerard had a question. Um, could you tell us more about the general medieval soundscape, say, in a city or a village um, and how animal sounds might have helped to define those spaces? Do any of your sources deal with that? Um, and then, you know, the other one he asked about, not just city village, but the church. So the church as, as both a space, you know, physically um, there, but them defining the boundaries of these other spaces in the soundscape. Yeah. So really good questions. Um, and in a way I can answer, I can answer them. So my archive is, is medieval literary texts. So, um, and I won't, I won't shy away from that because that's, that's my kind of specialism. So there's a lot of work currently on kind of historical approaches to medieval soundscapes as well. So, um, you know, in, in emergent towns, um, increasingly urbanized society, soundscapes become really important, whether it's the, you know, the bells of the cathedral or um, the ways that animals lived alongside humans. Um, I suppose the ways that some of my texts speak to those themes, um, if we look again at the life of St. Francis of Assisi, um, St. Francis set up his order of Friars Minor at a time when we have an increased urbanization in Western European cities and, you know, increased, um, increased farming ecologies, which is perhaps why sheep are mentioned so much in his life. And quite a lot of some of the scenes that in which he interacted with animals happen in urban spaces as well. So uh, he he um, preaches to the swallows, which I've already uh, described. And then a few chapters later, there's a student. I think it's in the city of Parma. A, it's narrated that a student is trying to study, and there's a, I think it's a swallow nearby chattering away and he can't concentrate. So he, he does the same thing that, he, that he's heard St. Francis does. He invites the swallow to come to his hand and tells it to be quiet. Um, and that happens in an urban space. And again, when St. Francis dies, he's in a church and the swallows come and sing around the church. So that's one way which my texts speak to that kind of urban space. Um, in another sense, in the fables, one of the ways that I try to read some of the fables with dogs is through this expression, the hue and cry. So in old French, um, we have uh, the expression, eu et cri, um, back to that word again for cry, cri, um, that I was talking about earlier. And there are some fables where, um, for example, you have the wolf and the billy goat arguing and the billy goat goes to the top of the hill, cries out and summons the wolf, the, the dogs and the farmer. And at that point, uh, uh, the dogs come to the rescue. And I, I suggest that the language that's used in the fables, often with these verbs, hue and crie, they map out onto the kind of reality of the historical hue and cry practice where you could if someone robbed something from you you could 
raise the hue and cry and send people running after them. Um, and so there are ways that uh, animal sounds in the fables mirror the kind of legal practices of um, medieval England. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I said there, there's a lot of work at the moment on medieval soundscapes from a, a, a more historical perspective, but the, the literary texts are interacting with that um, in really interesting ways as well. So in this processes that you described then animal sounds you know they take on particular meanings they become associated with you know animals that are associated again with uh, places practices classes etc uh, but do you see any change over time uh, in this like where particular animal sounds take on different meaning uh, after a while Yeah, that's good. That's another good question. I suppose I suppose it links to to what I was just saying right, about increased urbanization. So some of those Latin word lists that we talk about that I talked about earlier, they have the remnants of wolves and, and bears that, you know, animals that are pretty much eradicated from uh the, the the landscape of the time and then if you go to if you look at other texts like the life of saint francis you see him actually him um interacting with you know primarily with with sheep so moving towards a kind of agrarian um economy whereas my literary my kind of archive is I suppose the 12th and the 13th centuries. So by that time in medieval England, we do we we don't really have the presence of, of things like wolves and bears unless they are part of menageries or um, you know far away from urban centers. So I think it's quite an, an important time um, where we still have the echo of certain animal noises coming in, but moving towards a kind of new urban and rural environment in which those animals no longer are, certainly no longer a threat, even if they are perhaps slightly present on the fringes of society. Um, in terms of over time, uh, for the animal sounds themselves, it's quite it's quite a difficult question to ask. Some of the terminology in French from my text is still very similar to the French of today. Um, English words have perhaps changed uh, more um, over time, but I mean, I suppose that's that's quite a, a broad kind of generalization. But that's my inkling from from the source work yeah I was just going to ask um, if you could say a little bit more about the issue of silence so of stopping these animals from speaking because you have several examples then where uh, St. Francis and then you know this um, students uh, silence birds so um, how do you think about silence in a relationship to sound? then in 
in your book? Well, silence appears in, in the discussion for, for each of my chapters. Um, so, so, you know, for, for each of my texts, silence is present. Um, and usually silence is, is obviously a point of, the point of silence in text is usually for certain types of reflection. So um, the, the bestiary um, describes the sound of the cockerel singing, a very quite an important sound for monastic uh, daily life. But it contrasts that with, with, with the silencium of kind of liturgical meditation and, and the kind of meditation as part of singing the hours. Um, and again, I think that's what Francis is, is trying to do initially when he silences the birds, it's to get, you know, create the space for meditation. But what it also does is it establishes a certain type of human exceptionalism, as I was speaking about. But then you also have an interesting silence in that fable of the cuckoo that I was talking about, where the cuckoo, which, by the way, is one of those words that hasn't changed much over time in either language, English or French. The cuckoo is kind of silent. Well, he's silent when he should speak. Um, and that's also an interesting uh, idea in medieval texts as well. When, you, when, when should you speak or, or when shouldn't you speak? Um, uh, there was another thing I was going to say about silence as well. I suppose the, the thing about sound is that it's if you think about soundscapes you're always having to think about silence as well and I think a lot of scholarship in modern sound studies is, tries to work with that as well if we talk about sound we have to talk about silence um, and if we talk about who can speak and who can hear perhaps we talk about who can't speak and who can't hear uh, either so yeah interesting questions perhaps for further reflection as well well, and I'm thinking here then in, in speaking, so there's silence and there's speaking. But the other thing that occurs to me that many animals do or that we attribute to them is singing. So, um, you know, that birds in particular sing versus just speak. I mean, or some birds we, we might say speak, you know, chatter um, and other birds sing. So I was wondering in your sources, if there are distinctions made about, yeah, the types of the animal, particularly birds and the role of song in the speaking. Yeah, it all depends on who is singing. Because if it's St. Francis who's singing, it's fine. Um, if it's the siren who's singing, it's not fine. And um, when you know if you you read across these texts you definitely get the sense that song is dangerous um but, and you know bear in mind that lots of scribes and authors of these texts were trained in um, you know monastic orders and things so um you get the sense that that song can be dangerous and something to to um plug your ears to which is something that i discuss in the conclusion um of my book kind of the idea of not responding to sound is is also important as much as important as it is to respond um this this uh kind of 
experiences a big revival in the later period after after kind of my archive in this book. So when in in the 13th and 14th centuries, we get a lot of um, songs and uh, you know composers start to replay with animal sounds in medieval lyric and uh, in you know com musical compositions. But uh, I suppose that's the kind of a later development where it becomes a little bit more acceptable to, to enjoy song. And I think that's an interesting thing, a difference from today, isn't it? Um, certainly we would always talk about birdsong today as being something that we would sit back and enjoy. Um, and I, I imagine most people did enjoy birdsong 800 years ago as well, but there's also a sense in textual cultures that this is something that we should you know, be slightly wary of as well. Really interesting to think about that, that difference. I mean, I guess one place you might see it would be to look at it, a little bit more historically how often people had songbirds as caged birds, right? So there's certain bird species that the reason you keep them is not for how they look because they have fancy feathers, but because they make nice song. Um, and I don't know what how common that was or or not. Um, that might be a way into that. Um, did you have a question? Yeah. Um, so I was wondering if you see similarities to other types of the uh, you know onomatopoeic sounds that uh, kind of. Uh, sound like the word therefore uh, that could be other nature sounds I mean winds trees etc but also I mean sounds of, of things technologies etc in, mm. in cities so a wagon or a plow a wagon, yeah. Or a, yeah exactly <laughs> Do so, other things make sounds than than just animals um, in these in these texts yeah it's funny that you mentioned the wagon, because that's something that I was about to say. Yeah, um, in, in the bestiary, the, the lion is supposed to fear the sound of the white cockerel and the sound of the four wheels of the cart. Um, and that's potentially, uh, I'm, I'm, no one's really sure about why the lion is supposed to fear the sound of the white cockerel. Um, but the four wheels of the cart are potentially the four evangelists. Um, yeah, on an allegorical reading but you know carts make a sound naturally the cart in, in that bestiary uh, you, you'll have guessed it it makes a cri so it, the cart it actually cries out again it's kind of a uh, generalization of, of the sound um, and in those word lists that I keep referring to um, I've lost the page now one of the interesting things about it is it that there's not necessarily a distinction between animals and other things objects so um one passage reads the cow moves the crane uh, creaks crickets in english the lion roars and the hazel tree shakes so um quite and that's in a, a list that is introduced by saying, here is a list of the noises of all manner of beasts. And yet in creeps a hazel tree. Um, so medieval cultures didn't necessarily distinguish based on species in the way that we do today. Um, 
if you look at some, if you look at the more some of the more natural historic documents of the time, then you would you would probably find those distinctions more robust. Um, but in literary text, I mean, poets are driven by the play of words and the play of ideas. Yeah. So, where are you planning on going um, in the future with this? Are you are you thinking that soundscapes um, are going to continue to be interesting to you, or you know, do animals make other sounds in other languages, or you know, um, mm -hmm. I guess thinking about how this might influence, you know, where we kind of go as scholars. Yeah. So, I mean, this is that my book is quite focused study really of, of texts um but i am always interested in in the kind of work that armory uh, schaefer did on on those ideas that he had about the anthropocene and and the ways that soundscapes change over time from from you know ideas of creation to modern day birdsong in a parking lot right so and he tries to chart those um Broadly, and I think there's more to do. Um, thinking about soundscapes and thinking about even the way that the terminology that we employ to describe sound is always very ambiguous. So we talk about soundscapes or sound zones, sound milieus, or ambiances. Um, a lot of this terminology comes from musicology um, or you know sound studies. And there's a lot more work to do there, trying to identify the nuances of the way different texts work or the way that sounds are presented, um, you know, for, for different types of interpretation. So, yeah, I, I've, I've, I've recently written about noise pollution in a different text, thinking about the ways that singing can affect ecologies on, on different levels, um, as, uh, on, on a maritime narrative where uh, some monks are singing on a boat in the life of St. Brendan and they kind of disturb all the marine life at different points, which I find quite interesting to think about as, as pollution in a sense. Um, and I've also I've been thinking a little bit about, about rewilding and the ways that we can think about sounds as disruptive forces in in literary texts and, and ways we, that we might actually rewild text by thinking more um, specifically about the ways that sound works as, as you know, inviting, disrupting our reading practice. Um, and in terms of archive, I mean, there's, there's more work that I would definitely like to do in relation to musicology um, as well in that, in that period. You know, how, how do these musical works think about you know it, putting them in relation to the work that I've already done how does that change our how does that change our way of understanding how people back then understood uh, the natural world um, and, and the ways they express free music and sound so yeah more work to be done yeah, so our time is running out now, but those are good closing words. More work to be done. Uh, <laughs> so thank you so much to uh, uh, Liam Lewis uh, for presenting his book, uh, Animal Soundscapes in Anglo-Norman Texts, as out now with D.S. Brewer. Uh, and thank you also to all of you in the audience.
Thank you very much.